First Peter chapter number five this evening. Man, what a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. It seems like the midweek prayer meeting just feeds my heart and my soul. And I, you know, I love, I love getting up and having church on Sunday morning and Sunday night. But there's something about that Wednesday night prayer meeting, meeting midway through the week and uh, getting the encouragement that we need. So I'm honored that you're here tonight. I trust that God is going to speak to our hearts through his word. First Peter chapter number five. I'd like to begin reading in verse number five. First Peter chapter five, verse number five. The word of God says, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to each and every heart according to thy will, that you'd receive glory from what's said and what's done tonight. Lord, we're mindful to praise you for what you've already done. Lord, we are humbled by the fact that you'd work in our church, that you would uh, minister amongst us, that you'd save souls, that you'd that you'd stir hearts. Lord, we don't deserve any of that, but we thank you for your graciousness, your faithfulness, your mercy. Lord, and, and, and your tenderheartedness in dealing with us. Lord, help us tonight to have our hearts trained on the word of God, and may you be glorified. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The books of First and Second Peter are set against the backdrop of, of suffering, of trial, of persecution, and of affliction. I, I was uh, struck by the phrase in verse number 9. The Bible says, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You know, one of the reasons that I like being in the house of God on Wednesday night is to hear about all the awful things that are happening to you people. Amen? Because it reminds me they don't just happen to me. And uh, I'm not happy that they're happening to you, uh, but I sure am encouraged to know I'm not the only one. Amen? And uh, we have a biblical precedent for that here in First Peter. He wants these believers to know that though they're struggling, though they are battling things, though their burdens are heavy, they are not alone in that affliction. There's other folks that are going through it. And hey, the same God that sustains those other folks is going to sustain you and I. The same God that has been faithful to them is going to be faithful to you and I. The same God that has never broken a promise to them is not going to break his promises to you and I. The same God that showed up just on time for them is going to show up just on time for you and I. The same God that heard their prayers is going to hear our prayers tonight. And I'm just glad to know uh, that we can gain some encouragement from the word of God when our burdens begin to grow heavy upon us. If we're to understand the book of First and Second Peter, I, it would help us to understand a little bit of who this book is written to. Now, you and I understand that through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, the author is not Peter, it's the Holy Ghost, though Peter is the penman. And we understand that the recipient is not just the people to whom he intended it, but it stretches beyond that into ages even such as today when God is ministering to the hearts of human beings now. But it would help us to understand a little bit of the context of what's taking place. And really only one verse is needed for us to understand a little bit about 
what's taking place in the backdrop of this book of the Bible. And it's the first verse of this book. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, this is how Peter begins this epistle. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, when he uses the term strangers, he's using that in a cultural sense. And all these nations that he has mentioned as the location and destination of the people to whom he's writing are all Gentile nations. Peter is writing to Jewish believers, people uh, that were raised up in Judaism. It was their culture, their ethnicity, their religion. But they saw the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, saw that Christ could do for them what the law could not do for them, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and were gloriously born again. And they had left the land of Israel. They had actually been driven out of the land through persecution. And they had been scattered. Acts chapter number 8 details some of this for us. They had been scattered through Gentile lands. And Peter's heart is burdened. You know, he was the man that was preaching on the day of Pentecost when many of these believers would have first put their faith in Jesus Christ. And he was one of those pillars of the New Testament church at Jerusalem that was pastoring many of these people before persecution had scattered them. And so his heart is touched and is and his burden is is laid heavy with with the condition and the struggles and the suffering of these believers. So pen in hand, he writes this short epistle to encourage them in the midst of their trials. When we think about the trials that they had, though I doubt any of us are facing anything exactly or even as intensely similar to what they're going through, I think there's probably some parallels. You think about these Jewish believers in Gentile lands, and, and there's three things that strike my mind tonight. One, they had lost their relationships in their life. This was a group of people that was doubly abandoned by the world around them. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, when they professed Christ, their Jewish family would have abandoned them. Uh, They would have bought a casket. They would have buried it. They would have purchased a tomb and sealed it empty and reckoned their loved one to be dead unto them. And then they are driven from the land of Israel. And now they are in Gentile lands where they are treated as a plague and as a scourge. Their relationships, other than with one another in Christ, had completely dissolved. You know, uh, some of the times the burdens grow heavy in our life when our loved ones abandon us. When relationships that we thought were never going to change all of a sudden just evaporate overnight. They had lost their relationships. Not only that, they had lost their resources. Here they are in a place where they have no network, where they have no infrastructure. They have left there, not because there were good prospects in any of these places, but because persecution had driven them there. And undoubtedly, it impoverished a lot of them to have to go to these places. You know, we don't like to say this, but it's the truth of the matter. We all worry about money. Uh, now, if you got it, you don't worry about it. <laughs> but if you ain't got it, you worry about it. Uh, it's always funny to me hear rich folks complain and whine about how much of a burden it is to have, to have all their money. I always think, well, I could help you with that. Amen. I, I could I could take all those problems away from you. They had lost their resources and they were struggling undoubtedly. Uh, they no doubt wish that they had had the means to secure for themselves safety. And, you know, the truth of the matter is we may think we're too spiritual to worry about it, but there ain't a one of us that when things get tight, we are not burdened by that reality. Uh, all of us wish that we could have uh, more breathing room, if we can use that terminology. And we're living in times now, man, where uh, you don't, uh, for a long time in this country, you, you just about had to be reckless to be impoverished. But we're not in those days anymore. 
Uh, we're living in days where a man can try everything he can, work as hard as he possibly can, and still find himself in tight conditions. And that can be a burden, particularly when you have a family, loved ones, people depending on you. It can cause the burdens of your life to grow heavy upon you. And then I thought about this. They had lost not only their relationships and their resources, but they had also lost their refuge. The land of Israel had been their home. It had been the place where they were comfortable. It had been the place where they were familiar. It would have been a place of safety unto them. And they had never been safer than when they were in the land of Israel. But they're no longer there anymore. And they've been driven out from this place of rest and of refuge. And you know, sometimes in our life, though we don't have a physical locale necessarily that assures us refuge, we can have a life that's been humming along in peace and contentment. And then all of a sudden, something comes along and throws it all into disarray. All of a sudden, the burdens grow heavy because our life is shaken to its very foundation. And though we know the Lord's not going to fail us, it doesn't change the fact that that sense of peace and security that we did enjoy that oft is too reliant upon our circumstances has nevertheless been jerked out from under us. We find ourselves without our refuge. So these are a group of people whose burdens in life have grown heavy. I'm glad God has an answer for when our burdens grow heavy. I hope your life is not burdened right now. I hope your life is going great. I hope everything's exactly the way that you want it to be. But sooner or later, you live for the Lord, there's going to be times that the burdens grow heavy. And the Bible is not silent on how we're to handle those times. In our text tonight, verse number 7 gives us a little synopsis of what we're supposed to do. It says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. That's a beautiful verse. But can I be honest with you tonight? Oftentimes, it's a frustrating verse, too. So why is that, preacher? Well, because it sounds real good when a preacher says it, but it gets real difficult when you're trying to practice it. I think there often is a fundamental misunderstanding of this passage. I think sometimes we we say it as though it's this simple, easy thing, but when we really dig apart what's being said here, we notice three things immediately that remind us that though this is something that may be simple in its execution, it is not necessarily an easy thing, particularly for our flesh. There's three things I notice. One, I notice the use of that word casting. It means to throw like you would a stone, to take it and to hurl it and to heave it. I've often heard preachers talk about this and sort of equate the idea of the passion or discipline with which we we uh, unburden ourselves to the Lord. As though if we cry hard enough, as though if we pray loud enough, somehow that's going to get it done. Uh, But the thing that strikes me is this. When it talks about casting like a man would a stone, it's speaking of a conscious action. In other words, we have to deliberately and consciously go to the Lord with our problems. You know what we want often? We want the Lord to come and take our problems. But that's not what he said. He said, hey, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He said, I'll give you rest. I, then you can take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden's light and I'll take your yoke. But he doesn't say you just sit right where you're at and don't worry, I'll come find you. I'm glad when I was lost and undone, he came and found me. But since I got born again, if I want my burdens to be on him and not on me, I have to make a conscious, deliberate decision to come to the Lord and say, now, Lord, I can't handle this. I can't do this. I am bringing these burdens unto you. It's a conscious casting. But then notice this, man, how do we miss this? But we often do. He doesn't say casting the care that's bothering you the most upon him. He doesn't say casting your heaviest care upon him. He doesn't say casting your most recent care upon him. He doesn't say casting your most annoying care upon him. He says casting all your care upon him. I would say this, it's a conscious casting, but it's a comprehensive cast. 
say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, here's our problem. We want to bring that one thing to God. And then we wonder why we don't get no help and why we don't get no peace. And the reality is it's not merely taking a matter and bringing it and saying, all right, Lord, I'll take care of everything else if you'll take care of this. I don't like to use the term lifestyle as regards our decisions because I think the world has has abused that terminology, but this is a life decision we're making. It's not me saying, now, Lord, I'll handle all this, but you take this. It's you saying, now, Lord, I can't handle any of this. I can't do this in my own strength. I can't do it in my own energy. It's not just saying this problem has whooped me, but it's saying I'm completely helpless on any of these matters. And Lord, if you don't do these things in my life, then they won't be accomplished. We could say it this way. It is the crucified life. It is dying to self. It is saying, I'm not going to seek to do any of these things through my own strength. It doesn't mean that it won't require my participation, but it doesn't require my energy and my strength and my initiative. What it requires is the strength and the help of the Lord. I can't do any of these things, God. I'm putting all my care upon you because all of it is beyond my capability. It's a comprehensive casting. But then it says this, for he careth for you. Man, isn't that precious? He careth for you. We know that, but isn't it good to be reminded, especially when the burdens grow heavy? I mean, the Holy Ghost knows not just what we need, but what we need when we need it. And he knows when we need what we need. And he knows that in this moment of being overburdened with life's cares and troubles, we need to be reminded that he careth for us. Now, when you go to someone and 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 you begin to pour out your heart unto them, you wouldn't go to them if you didn't believe they cared for you. And you go to them specifically because they care for you. And you believe that as you come to them, if there's anything that they can do, they will do it because of the love that they have for you. We could say it this way. It is a confident casting. We give it to the Lord because we know he cares. The devil's going to consistently tell you that God doesn't care about you. It's one of his greatest lies. It's the lie he told in the garden that he had his interests at heart and not Adam and Eve's interests at heart. But, you know, God doesn't have to choose between those two things because what's best for him is what's best for you. And uh, he always cares about what's going on in your life. There's times in life that the people, even that love you, don't care about what you're going through. And uh, the, I'll just be honest with you as a pastor, one of the things you really have to work at sometimes is caring about some of the things that people go through. And uh, not because you're not empathetic, but because you just only have a heart so big. And, and because very often, if we're to be frank, sometimes things that are not a priority to us simply don't, don't, we don't empathize with. And sometimes people come to you and they'll, you know, bear your heart, their heart to you and pour their heart out to you. And, and, and you can, you can empathize, but to really, really feel what they're going through is a battle. I'm glad the Lord's not like that. Man, he always cares. When nobody else cares, he cares. Why does he care? Because he careth for you. Uh, one of the things I've tried to exhibit in my parenting is an empathy, a caring about the things my kids are going through. Uh, there's nothing that an eight-year-old goes through that's a big deal. There's just not. Stephen's with me. There's not. I mean, the things that disturb them to their very core are completely and utterly unimportant. It's things that have no bearing upon the long-term viability of their life and happiness. It's stuff that has nothing to do with anything meaningful in any way. And if you're not careful as a parent, you will condition them to believe that the people that care about them the most don't really care about anything about them. And you have to make a concerted, deliberate, conscious effort to care about the things that they go through because often they're not things you're going to care about anyway. 
Uh, my son will come to me and he'll start telling me things. He'll be playing a game or something. And he'll start telling me about all these things that's going on. And I'm sitting there. And I'm doing everything. I mean, I'm trying hard. I'm breaking a sweat trying to care. But they're just not important to me. But here's what I've learned. I may not care about those things, but I care about him. So I'm going to go out of my way to care about those things because he cares about those things. And I care about him. You say, preacher, could God care about what I'm going through? Well, he careth for you. And because he careth for you, he careth about those things as well. But, you know, when we look at this passage, we have more than just this short uh, summary verse in verse number seven. What we really have laid out before us is a detailed process for what this matter looks like. I think most of us, if, if, if I, if I ask the question, who wants to cast their cares upon the Lord? We'd all probably raise our hand and we'd all say amen and we'd all, if I asked you to take a test, you'd get the right answer. We all know what we'd say to that, but I think most of us would follow up by saying, okay, preacher, now how do I do that? I, I get that I'm supposed to trust the Lord with this, but what does that look like in my life? And with that thought in mind, I want you to notice three things tonight in our text. We'll be very brief as the Lord helps us. But three things that are going to happen as we cast our care upon the Lord and that are required for us to cast our care upon the Lord. You know, this passage begins really midway through verse number five. It says, yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Let me say a word first tonight about the submission of casting our care upon him. You know, one of the things we battle with in this thing of casting our care upon the Lord is we want to pick that care right back up, put it right back in our hands and fight that battle on our own behalf. And so before Peter ever says anything about this matter of casting a care, he says the first thing you have to do is humble your heart before others and before God. Now, what does that look like? Well, notice, number one, the peace peace that clothes us. He says that we are to be clothed with humility. Oftentimes, the burdens that I experience in life relate to other people. And uh, I've often had the feeling if everybody else would just uh, quit, quit whining and pitch in and help me, my life would be a lot better. You ever feel like that? If I could just get all these, you know, seven billion people in the world to mind for about 20 seconds, then we'd, we'd get something accomplished. And so often we are, uh, we are tempted to take those burdens and to try instead to clothe our, clothe ourselves with pride as though we can fix it, we can handle it, go, uh, put other people in their place, try to, try to strong arm our problems into submission. And often problems equal people. And instead, you know, if we're really trusting the Lord with that matter, we're going to trust him with it. We're not going to make it our responsibility to beat everybody into submission. We're going to trust the God that changes the hearts of men, our first, our own heart first and foremost, to do for us what we cannot do with ourselves. In other words, we have to resolve ourselves to have peace in the midst of our trials. Uh, Listen, you can't change very often the things going on around you, but you and you alone control what goes on in your heart and mind. And you can make your mind up that in your heart is going to be peace and, and on your, on your vesture, on your countenance is going to be humility. You're not going to walk around trying to fix it all yourself. Now that doesn't mean that you abdicate personal engagement or responsibility. Doesn't mean if God lays out a task or a step for you to carry out that you say, well, you know, no, I, I'm, I'm trusting God. So that means I'm not doing anything. No, that's foolishness. Uh, if there's something we can do, we should do it. If we have liberty from the Lord to do it. 
But part of casting our care upon him is recognizing that we don't have the wherewithal to do what needs to be done in the first place. And accept God in his favor and in his providence and in his wisdom. Uh, reach this situation and manipulate it, coerce it, change it, orchestrate, administrate it. We are not going to be able to produce the desired effect. So I would say this, we see, number one, the peace that clothes us. Number two, we see the promise that comforts us. Notice what he says next. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. In other words, he is working in in contravention of the prideful, but he is working in cooperation and support of the humble. When we seek to take these matters into our own hand, and I ain't worried about it, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to do it myself. We are giving God a responsibility to have to humble us and to have to bring us to heal and teach us that it is beyond our capability. I don't know if you're aware of this, but God's doing more in your life than just putting you through the ringer. I'm just going to say that again. God's doing more in your life than just putting you through the ringer. If you think God's sitting up in heaven bored and looking for somebody to pick on, you need to read your Bible. You've got a wrong perspective of how God works in in, in humanity. Hey, that's not what he's doing. He's doing something much larger, much bigger than that. However, if we make it a matter of our pride and then give God a second duty or action or responsibility. Now, he doesn't just have to straighten out whatever he's trying to straighten out about us, but he has to humble us as well. What are we doing? We are resisting God. And if we resist him, he's going to resist us. Why does he do that? Because he hates us? Because uh, because his pride or arrogance won't allow him? No, because he knows what's best for us and he wants what's best for us. The sooner you come to terms with the fact that God's already doing things right, the more peace you'll have in your life. God's not waiting for you to pray the magic prayer to let him know the right thing to do in your life so that he knows how to guide and direct you appropriately. He's already doing what's right in your life. It's a question of whether you will submit your heart and life to what he's doing in your life And quit swimming against the stream of God's providence and instead allowing God to have his will and way. I see the promise that comforts us. He he resisteth the proud, but here's what he does. He giveth grace to the humble. You know why? Because the humble need grace. You know why we need grace? Because our flesh doesn't like being humble. We need the grace of God. We need the strength of God. And we can have the promise that if we'll, we'll humble ourselves before God. There's never been a man, woman, or child that ever humbled themselves before God and regretted it afterwards. There's never been a one of them that said, well, if I'd known this is how God was going to do me, I would have just took this into my own hands. Now, there's been a lot of people that have said, if I'd known it was going to turn out this way, I sure would have left it in God's hands. But there's never been anybody that said, I humbled myself before God and I was the loser for it. No, we, we can be encouraged in knowing the promise that comforts us. Then notice this. Notice the providence that crowns us. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Boy, that little word, due, D-U-E, that's a big word, due time. Only the heart and wisdom and, and knowledge of God can really define that. Because for every circumstance, it's different. You know what the word, the phrase due time means? The appropriate time. Uh, now, listen, you and I, we are bound within this construct of time, but God's not. God is as present at the end of your trial as he is in the middle of your trial. I, I used to often say when God first uh, really clarified in my heart that reality that God and his relationship with time, he's, he's everywhere at all times, at every moment. Every moment is in his immediate presence, man. I, I thought about that and I thought, you know, God's on the other side of our trials before we ever get there. And um, one day I was visiting somebody at the hospital and I was wanting to be a blessing to him. And I looked at him, I said, listen, 
God's already waiting for you at the other end of this surgery. And all of a sudden, they got the funniest look on their face. I thought, maybe I ought to rephrase that. I got nervous, you know. Does a preacher know something I don't? <laughs> but, you know, for our life, it's true. He's sitting at the other end of this trial. He already knows what's going to take place. And so he knows what due time is. We can put our, ourselves in his hand. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You know what that suggests? If we're humble, he will exalt us. It'll be in due time, but he will lift us up. Our head may hang low now, but he's the lifter up of our head. He will exalt us. So I see the submission of casting your care. But then notice number two tonight, I see the soberness of casting your care upon him. Verse 8. Just after he said this, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you, be sober, he says, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So in other words, if we're going to cast our care upon the Lord, we have to have a sober perspective about some things. We have to have clear eyes, clear head, clear heart about some things. When it talks about soberness, it's not talking about abstaining from alcohol, although if it did say that, I'd say amen to it. It says it plenty other places in the Word of God. But here the soberness that's being spoken of is a soberness of mind and perspective. And what he's saying is you better wake up, be aware. He uses the term vigilant next. We ought to be on the lookout, watching for what takes place. In other words, there's three things we need to be sober about. Number one, we need to be sober about our foe. The devil is not going to take it easy on you because you had a bad day. He's going to double down on you because you had a bad day. He's not going to look at you and say, well, them poor, pitiful people. It's, you know, they're going through this struggle. I guess I'll even be. No, listen, when you're going through trials, that's exactly when he shows up to try to destroy your life, you better wake up and realize there's more at stake than just whatever the substance of your trial is that you're going through. If it's a relationship, there's more at stake than the relationship. If it's finances, there's more at stake than bankruptcy. If it's refuge, peace in your heart, there's more at stake than you just getting a good night's sleep. The devil will destroy your life if he can. He's on the prowl. He's roaming about. He's roaring. He's walking about. He's seeking whom he may devour. Don't let your guard down. I know we oftentimes, we have a perspective on the world as though if we're not feeling 100%, the world's going to take it easy on us. Uh, and that's part of the reason that we're ethic has just deteriorated in our country is people lack that comprehension that they have a duty and a responsibility no matter how you feel you have a duty and a responsibility well listen the devil's not going to give you any quarter if he sees a weak spot he's going to pounce on it he's going to try to destroy you we need soberness about our foe number two we need soberness about our faith he says in verse nine whom resist steadfast in the faith I often hear people talk about wanting to battle the devil. I want to fight the devil. Lord, I, you know, I, I want to fight. I don't want to let him win. I want to fight him. I want to meet him on the battlefield. What does that look like? Well, here in our text, it says this. It's resisting. Resisting. What does it mean to resist? It means to stay in an appropriate position or condition and to not allow the enemy to gain any inroads in your life. See, you don't have to conquer. You just have to resist. You don't have to charge forth into battle in the midst of all of it. You have to make your mind up. You've got to plant your feet on God's word and say, I cannot change everything, but I'm going to stand right where I'm at on the truth of the word of God. And I'm not going to let him move me from what I know is true. It's reaffirmed and enforced by the next phrase, steadfast in the faith. In other words, you don't you don't have to figure out how to unriddle and unravel your problem. You have to say, now, Lord, I can't fix this. 
I'm putting it in your hands. But what I can do is make my mind up that I'm not going not to let the devil push me away from you. I'm going to stand right here where I need to be. Your faith is absolutely vital in the midst of your burden times. Oftentimes we feel a fragility, a weakness, a vulnerability concerning our, our spiritual strength and faith. But in fact, our faith is built for moments of persecution, affliction, and trial. Uh, we don't need it just when it when it's... And I, I hate to say we don't need it. We need faith for every moment of every day. But when faith shines, what it's built for is in the middle of trials. That's what it is designed for is when things are difficult. Say, preacher, what do I need to do? Stay by the Word of God. Stay in church. Stay faithful. Keep praying. Preacher, I'm praying. Nothing's changing. Keep praying. Something will change. Preacher, I've read my Bible, but I ain't got no answer. Keep reading. You ain't read all of it. If you, if you, if you read it cover to cover and don't find your answer, that's just one time. Go back to Genesis. Read through it again. You missed something. Keep reading. Keep studying your Bible. Preacher, I've been going to church all these years, serving the Lord, and still problems befell me. Nobody said you'd be exempt from problems. Keep serving the Lord. Keep faithful to church. Resist Him. How do I resist Him, preacher? By remaining steadfast in the faith. We need to have soberness about our faith. And then notice this. We need to have soberness about our fellowship. He says, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You know, the devil comes along and wants to tell you that your suffering is proprietary, that you have done trademark and copyrighted it, and no one could understand because no one is going through what you're going through. It's part of the reason the devil wants to keep people out of church. Because if you start going to church, you're going to find out that others of God's people is going through the exact same things that you're going through. The devil has done told you when you're sitting alone in your recliner that only you were suffering this way. But then I went down to the house of God and in testimony time, I found out that brother so-and-so was dealing with the exact same thing. I found out sister so-and-so was struggling the same way. Thought I was the only one whose health failed and I found out so-and-so had a similar sickness. Thought, I thought my kids were the only ones went wild. Went down to the house of God, found out so-and-so's kids had gone that same destructive path. Thought that mine, mine was the only marriage that was struggling and then found out somebody else was battling the same exact things. Your afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You ain't the only one. You need to wake up and realize you ain't the only one. You, you've got, it's easy to get that Elijah complex. And that's why the devil, he's satisfied for you to sit at home in the lazy boy cave. Amen. See, when Elijah was in the cave by himself, the devil could convince him that I, even I only am left. But then God came pulling up outside the cave and said, Elijah, we need to talk. And he said, you know, Elijah, you're not the only one. I've got, I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee that haven't kissed Baal. There's other people going, Elijah, through what you're going through. The devil tries to isolate us. He can't really isolate us, so he has to, he has to create a synthetic isolation in our lives. So I see, I see the soberness of casting. And then I want you to notice, and I'll say a couple words and be done, verses 10 and 11. I see the sanctification of casting our care. Peter says, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I told you a moment ago, God's doing more in your life than just putting you through the ringer. Well, what exactly is he doing? Well, notice two things here. One, notice the fruitfulness of a great perfecting is taking place. He says, after that you have suffered a while, what's he going to do? Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Those are all good things, aren't they? Those are all things that can only be accomplished through being burdened. 
They are things that can only be developed through trial and through difficulty. You think about something being made perfect, meaning it being brought to fruition, and you think about something like an animal that is being trained for a specific task or for a specific uh, job. It can only be brought to that, that peak performance through the burdens that are placed upon it. Being established, in other words, giving it experience that it needs to be able to face what's ahead of it. Being strengthened, settling. All these things that are, are things that can only be accomplished through the burdens that we experience. God's not got you going through this because he's mad at you. Uh, God's not got you going through this because he's bored. God's got you going through this because you can only grow in the way that he needs you to grow by going through it. He's not mad at you. He's not trying. Well, he might be trying to straighten you out if you've got sin in your life. But irrespective of that, it doesn't change the fact that God is bringing about a fruitful work. You say, preacher, what if he's chastening? Well, don't you know even chastening afterwards yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness in them which they are exercised thereby? That's what the Hebrews writer said. You say, preacher, is he, is he trying to change me or chasten me? Well, chastening will change you. Whether he's, whether he is trying to, uh, purge you or perfect you, it doesn't, doesn't make a difference. If you'll be faithful and, and, and get your heart in the right condition before the Lord, there will be the fruitfulness of a great perfecting. And then notice this. I like this. Look at the beginning of verse 10. The God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Then he talks about what God's doing through their trials after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Then he says this, verse 11, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's almost like he says, you know what God's trying to do is get glory out of your life. And through your suffering and trials, he's getting glory out of your life. Let's say it this way. We have not only the fruitfulness of a great perfecting, but we have the fulfilling of a great purpose. In other words, God is is getting, you know, the most he can get out of our life is glory. So when we suffer and we glorify God in the midst of it, he's getting the most out of our life. We are being used of God in a way that transcends merely what human service and and diligence and discipline can produce. We're, we're being used in a way that only God can wield us to bring himself glory. Say, preacher, I don't see the sense in all of it. Well, you may not. Say, so, preacher, I don't know why I'm having to go through it. Well, you may not. But I can promise you this. If you'll let God get the glory out of your life, then your trials will be worth far more than whatever the pain is that's caused through them. Man, I'm glad when our burdens are heavy, we've got a place we can go. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play the altars open. Well, why don't you come and cast those cares upon him tonight? You're going through something. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's someone you love that's going through something. But it takes a conscious decision. We have to deliberately cast our cares. We don't just sit back and hope it magically happens. We deliberately bring those things to the Lord and cast them upon him. But not just that thing, whatever that thing is that's burdening you, but rather the entirety, the entirety of our responsibilities, the entirety of our difficulties. We say, Lord, now this thing of living the life that I need to live, I can't do it. And so I cast it upon you. And you know what we'll find out? As was always the case, he careth. For us, Lord, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.